Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. Today, my guest is Monica Jamaludin. Monica is an embodied futures researcher and leadership coach whose curiosity and sincerity are as invaluable as her perspicacity. Her clients have called her their trusted advisor, vision holder, and midwife for their dreams, but she thinks of herself simply as a partner in exploration. She is fascinated by relationality, how the ways we relate to ourselves, to others, and to our environments can shape, heal, and expand us. Her work is guided by her core desire to move the needle on a world that operates from fear, scarcity, and contraction to one that operates from love, enoughness, and expansion. Monica has supported clients in getting clear on their greatest visions and bringing them to life, and in the process, stepping into their fullest expression as leaders across all domains of life. She does this through one-to-one coaching, group coaching, and workshops that support individuals and organizations navigate interpersonal challenges, manage in times of transition, and create space for integration. Her work as a futurist informs her coaching practice. She believes that taking the long view of time allows us to reclaim agency, build resiliency, and expand possibilities in the face of uncertainty and change. And in this conversation, we, like in all of my conversations, we explore my guest background. So we talk about where Monica grew up. Monica, as a little data point and fun fact, has been to all seven continents, and she is really a student and explorer of the world. And so in her exploration of the world, she has arrived at this question, which is the focal point of her work, the question of what really is enough? How do we know that we have enough in our life? And in a society, in American society, where we are constantly being sold ways that we are not enough and are distracted with consumption and thinking that safety and belonging is something that needs to be cultivated by buying things and filling our life with experiences and more, more in so many ways, Monica really rests in this question of what is enough? What is enough food? What is enough money? Where does my safety really come from? And we explore ways that she cultivates enoughness in her life. She does this through meditation. So she talks about some of her experience with meditation, some of her teachers. She talks about her experiences in therapy. Nutrition is another way. And that could be from the quantity of the food that we eat, but also the way that we can really heal through our relationship with food and our relationship with movement. And a curiosity of mine lately has been psychedelics. And she has some experience with psychedelics as well. So since Monica has gone through so many different experiences in her life, I really think that this about an hour and 20 minutes or so is a wonderful download on how you can uh, pull from her different 
experiences. And I love that her mission in life is to move the needle on a world that operates from fear, scarcity, and contraction to one that operates from love, enoughness, and expansion. And I hope that this conversation leaves you in the possibility of a world that is full of love, enoughness, and expansion. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Monica has for us in store today. Monica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. I've been really looking forward to having you on. You were a really fun person to research. I Just before we got on this call, I was reading about how you've been to all seven continents and you've traversed so many different peaks and summits and places in the world. And it's, it's really an honor and, and privilege to have you on. And I wanted to start with you by asking, you know, I'm, I'm really curious about your come from and your childhood. And a way that I love to access that is by asking, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Yeah, I, it's such an interesting question. And I really appreciate the opportunity to think about it. I'll jump right in by saying, often when I think about my childhood, my mind jumps to the, the not so good because I've spent a lot of time processing things that happened in childhood and there's a lot of volatility. But this question reminded me that, you know, up until my parents separated when I was in middle school and up until then, I remember that we would have dinner every night together. And I was talking to my best friend about it. And she was like, yeah, not everyone, you know, not everyone does that. So it's something that I took for granted. And now I'm feeling very grateful for, you know, my, my dad traveled quite a bit for work, but he always made an effort to be home on time. And my mom always cooked, uh, you know, homemade meal and we would sit around the table. I don't really remember the conversations we had, but I remember the feeling of sitting around the table together. So I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for that, you know, just that, that threat of consistency. And for me, that really represents that whatever else might've happened, I never questioned that my parents loved and cared for me and my sister. That was always very obvious to me. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So it is something that in the 30 some odd guests that I've had on this podcast, it is more often than not, there are explanations of how they didn't have the typical family gathering and, and consistency. And something that I have been blessed with as well is a consistent dinner table. My parents sometimes were working and, and came home late, but there was always an attitude of, as a family, we do things together and there was lots of consistency. And I'm getting the sense that that was something that was really important for you. I'm finding myself really curious, you know, one of the, one of the things when, uh, when I'm asking that question, I, I want to understand what were some conditionings that you had that eventually led to the career choice that you had? And so um, I'm curious, was there any familial pressure to be a certain way? And that can be encompassing in lots of different ways as a student, as a woman, 
given uh, religion, ethnicity, anything at all? Like what was, what was expected of you as you were growing up? That is, yeah, it's a good question. I spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, what are the conditionings that we have? Where did they come from? And as you ask that question, so I'll take it one parent at a time. You know, my dad was a patrol, is a petroleum engineer. You know, he has his PhD and a, a bunch of patents. And he, what I've taken from him is his work ethic. I really admired, for, you know, for better or worse, sometimes he meant he wasn't there and was traveling for work, but I really admired and still admire how hard he works. And I think I've always taken that, taken that with me and throughout life, even when I didn't know what I wanted to do, I had this desire. Um, I think I see many of my friends and for them, work is a means, right? So they'll, they have a job and then it's like, I want to spend time with my family and friends and take care of my kids and all of that, which is beautiful. And then there's, there's another way of looking at it, at least another way, which is that I want, you know, having your work be the center of your life and being the thing that really brings a lot of meaning. And I really felt like, not to say that my dad didn't value family time, but he really loved his work. And I always knew that I wanted to find the thing that really lit me up and that I just didn't mind working for hours on. Um, so that's been its own journey. And I think that's one thing that I, I took from that, you know, of course, coming from like, <laughs> I can make the jokes about like, you know, immigrant parents. And if you did, if you got like an A minus, it's always like, well, what happened? Why was an A plus? And there certainly was a bit of that, but I never felt, I never felt that as like the main pressure, you know, for whatever reason, I always sensed that my parents they just really cared and they wanted us to be happy, you know? And so whatever, whatever the pressure might've, that they might've placed on me was coming from that place of, I want, I just want to make sure you're okay. And then on my mom's side, she, she was, she has this curiosity. I just remember she would like, we lay in bed and she would be reading us books about, I don't know, ancient Egypt or just picking random topics. And uh, she was so excited about it. And then that got me excited about it. And so I feel like from her, I got this curiosity and this like thirst for, for knowledge. Um, and I remember one thing that comes up to my mind is I remember in seventh grade, I think I got my first B in algebra and I came home crying and I was so upset that I did that, it, you know, I ruined my perfect record. And my mom was like, yeah, but you tried your hardest, right? I was like, yeah. And, you know, so she was comforting me in this, in this, um, in this moment. And she's like, no, it's okay. You know, like you'll try hard, you know, you'll try and you'll figure it out. It's, it doesn't make things, you know, completely, it doesn't ruin everything, you know? So that was, I think that's one thing that, that sticks out to me as well about my childhood. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, I'm hearing, I mean, I'm oversimplifying and I'm putting a little bit in my words, but there's the the driven and find work that you love that came mm -hmm. from your dad. And that was, you, you know, that sounds like it was the primary motivator in what you wanted to do with career choice, right? You wanted to find something that you were willing to dedicate hours and hours on end to. And your mom had maybe more of a nurturing energy and, and a general curiosity. It sounds like a worldly view of, it could be anything, right? Ancient Egypt or 
that was that was what you named but she just seemed like she cared about people about humanity and so that's yeah, yeah. so what so from there what did was there something else that you wanted to share yeah well as you were as you so nicely kind of summed that up it also reminded me that so my family both my parents are from bangladesh and when i was younger i mean ever since i was a baby we would go visit family there every year so i was there maybe two or three months out of every year maybe more and i think one thing that has really impacted me from a young age was that i would be i, I was born in canada and grew up there and then we moved to texas so I'd be switching between, you know, North America and Bangladesh and these drastically different contexts. And I still have one particular memory of being in Bangladesh and it was nighttime and we were driving down this really busy road and there was this like baby sitting in the median and just crying, you know, just it was I don't, and I, I can't, like, I can't get that image out of my, my mind, but I just remember watching it and it was like so heartbreaking and to, and the realization that, wow, like this kind of suffering is in the world. And it was kind of like the whole world was just moving around, not even paying attention, you know, and it just broke my heart. And I think when I, when I think back on like where and why did I start to care about the impact I have in the world, I think if I just like pinpointed to one moment, it probably would have been that mm -hmm. just seeing that, like, why do we not care? Why are, how are people moving around and pretending like this isn't happening, that there isn't a baby crying in the middle of the street mm -hmm. and then going back to, you know, Canada or Texas. And there's so many privileges there. Right. But I could never forget that the, at the moment that I'm sitting here with my friends, enjoying, you know, snacks and watching TV and having sleepovers, there is a kid out there that I have seen crying. Right. So it made it very real to me that just because I don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that was also a really big driver in, in the way that I saw the world and the things that I wanted to do. Mm, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's it's visceral. I, I have similar memories when I was younger as well, like walking the streets of I, I live in New York City now and I grew up outside of New York City. And in New York City, I, fortunately, I've never seen any infants on, on the streets of Manhattan, but I've seen many homeless people. And there are lots of cultural narratives about why someone might be a homeless person, but they're I don't know, lazy or uh, yeah, couldn't, can't get their act together. There's, and I think there was always, I didn't obviously have an understanding of the complexity of the world, but there was always an understanding like that's a human being. Why are we just letting them suffer there? And so I'm, I'm touched by what you shared was, were there any speed bumps along the way or like in terms of when you chose a, a career a vocation that you wanted to pursue did you know like I want to make an impact on the world and I want to be I'm a humanitarian I care about all different cultures all different people or were there other conditionings that informed the way that you initially began your career well I know that I've always been an idealist I mean through high school college but when I entered my senior year of college and I was thinking about, well, what do I do next? I, I had always imagined that I would, I don't know, go work for a nonprofit, change the world, 
And then I realized that coming out of college, I really didn't have many like applicable skills. You know, it's like, okay, I learned all this stuff, but, and, and I, and I remember thinking, well, I know that nonprofits typically are resource constrained. And so I felt like I would be another like drain on their resources. And so I was like, you know, what if I go out into the world and I learn some more hard skills or pick up something, you know, at least get myself and also like get myself into a position, a better positioned, you know, financial stability, that kind of thing, and then figure out, okay, how do I want to make my impact? And so, and, and then also I was in the business school. So I was at UT and the program, it's a, it's a great program, but it does sort of like limit you toward, and it funnels you towards either like consulting or investment banking. And so I started my career in investment banking, Mm -hmm. which at the time was really hard for me. It felt like I was sort of selling my soul. I had this very difficult relationship with money and how I saw it. And, but I went in and I did the two years, like the analyst program, you know, that's what took me to New York. And I very, I mean, it was a steep learning curve. So I very quickly like learned how to operate, you know, under really tight deadlines to be, to pay like attention to detail. So many things that there's probably a more gentle way to learn these things, but I kind of threw myself in the deep end. It was like, okay, how do I operate in a professional environment? What are the things I need to think about? You know, you're really, no one's handling you with kid gloves. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So it was harsh, but I, that I think has served me so much over the years to like go in into that intensive an environment and then also learn that, okay, I can do all these, I can do these things, right? I can, I can swim, I can work, hundred hour weeks if I need to. And then, and then it was like, okay, now I want to figure out what do I want to spend those hundred hour weeks working on. Right. So there was, there was that, there was also a bit of, even though I wouldn't say that my parents necessarily put this pressure on me, I think I put the pressure on myself a little bit that I wanted to make them proud or that I wanted to like prove that, you know, whatever number of things. And so that job was, I think, In a way, it was like easy to say, hey, I do this thing and I'm stable. I'm making money. You don't have to worry about me. That was like my way of like letting my dad know that like, you don't have to worry about me. You know, I'm an adult. I can take care of myself. So I think that was probably something else that sort of drove me. Mm -hmm. So one of the, there's lots of curiosities, but the thing that I'm most struck by is that you're working a hundred hour weeks. Like, and that's still, that's still the case with investment banking today, right? It's like, it's expected you're you have to work for a certain amount of time before you actually have any sort of <laughs> lifestyle that you actually want to or are able to enjoy. So I'm finding myself curious. You're working hundred hour weeks. What did you hit? Uh, was there a point where you were like, "This is I just can't do this anymore"? And like, how did you even find the time and energy to pivot into what was next? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I actually, while I was in banking, I also studied for the LSATs. So I was like working until, <laughs> yeah, I was working until like 11 p.m. midnight. And then I would go up to the conference room and, and, and like take my, you know, practice LSATs um, and then and then run back down. If I got an email, it was it was kind of nuts. So there was like, yeah, there, I, I wanted to go to law school for a long time and then and then ultimately realized that's that's not the path for me. But 
like I mentioned in college, I was sort of, I've always been this idealist. And so I knew that I didn't want to be in banking forever. So it was always for me, okay, I'm going to do, a, I'm going to do the two-year analyst program. I'm going to learn a bunch of skills, kind of just almost get the ball rolling on my career. And also you're making good money. So, you know, I saved a good chunk of cash and that for me was like, okay, I'm building that security for myself so then I can go do other things. And as it got closer to the two years, it was harder. I noticed myself being like, well, what if I stay just another year and, you know, I could just make it through one more year, save a bit more money. And, and I, and I thought about it and I was like, you know, the longer I stay, the harder it's going to be. I'm going to get used to a certain lifestyle. And one of my biggest fears has always been complacency. I didn't want to become complacent. I remember uh, in my MDs, like managing director's office, he had this coffee table book of like photos from Bhutan. And I remember seeing it and I was like, I don't want to wake up 20 years from now with in the same job and a coffee table book of Bhutan. I want to actually have gone there, which Mm. I ended up going there and working there. But that was a moment that I really remember where I was like, no, I, I want to like live my life and I want to go out there and I want to do things. The longer I stay here behind the desk saying that next year I'll do it, the lower my chances are of actually doing it. So I was like, cut the cord. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And where, where was the first place that you went from there? Did you, was there a specific job or did you just kind of pick it up, go and figure it out once, once you were in the next location? No, I'm a, I'm a planner. <laughs> my anxiety would not let me do that. So I started looking and my plan was loosely like quit banking, do something for maybe a year and then go to law school. Cause I was taking the LSATs. I took the LSATs right before I left banking. So like July, 2012. And then, and so I was looking for like kind of a year long program. And there was, a, there's a few different things I looked at. I can't remember the names now, but there was, oh, like, I don't know if you've heard of education pioneers. Basically, they send sort of anal- analysts into different schools to help you know, school districts, like, make better use of their data, essentially, right? So you're kind of like like mini consultants going in and doing one-year programs. So I, I, like, went through that process. I, I considered, like, different social impact organizations. And one of the, one, one of the opportunities I found, it was on Idealist. Dot org. I don't know if they're still big, but but they certainly were when, when I was looking for, for opportunities. And I found a, they're called, it's called MEST, Meltwater Entrepreneurial School of Technology. And it's this, it's sort of like, um, how would you describe it? So they, they have an incubator arm, but it's also this two-year program where they work with, and they work in Ghana. Now they work across West Africa, but at the time it was only in Ghana. And it's a two-year program where they take Ghanaian college graduates who are aspiring entrepreneurs. And they go through a this curriculum where they learn coding from the ground up and all of the business skills to run their own startups. And so I, I was a business fellow. So I, I worked with these teams from everything from like ideation through to to preparing for pitch for funding. And so, I mean, I like to joke that I, I literally was just trying to find the thing that was furthest away <laughs> from, from what I was doing at the time. You know, I was like, let me get away from this desk. Let me go as far away as possible. And 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 it, I loved it because I was like, oh, I, ha- I can use the skills that I have, right? These business skills and apply it for something that 
that has a lot of meaning. So I was advising them. I was teaching the, this group of students and it was probably one of the most fulfilling things I've done. I remember moving back to New York afterwards and, you know, I had a couple of my students who I saw in New York, they flew over, they were going to San Francisco, they were meeting with investors. And I was like, wow, they, that's an opportunity that if they hadn't gone through that program, they may never have had. And certainly I wasn't the, the core reason, but I felt like I played a part in that. And that was, that was amazing. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I want to now segue a little bit more into what you're up to today. And one of the things that we discuss a little bit is that you research enoughness. And I could yeah. see that there's, there's some patterns in, the, in what you've already teed up in this conversation so far in why that might be important to you. But I would love to hear, how did you end up on enoughness being something that means so much to you? And what, when you say enoughness, what do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah. So <laughs> I haven't, I mean, this is, this is also very, like a fairly new topic, but as you said, as I like started going into it, I realized that it's really been a concept that I've played, you know, that has played a role in my life. Um, maybe I just didn't name it as such, but I should probably preface this by saying that, you know, I'm a, I'm a leadership coach and I'm also getting my master's in something called foresight or future studies. And so one of my projects that I did for my master's program in my first semester was looking at the future of conscious communities. And during that process, I came across this concept of enoughness and I came across it in the context of time restricted eating as a, as a concept. So I was at a Zen retreat in Japan. Um, I think I mentioned to you that I was, I was living in Okinawa Mm -hmm. Um, and so over the winter, I think it was 2020, November, 2020, I went to a Zen retreat and I found this book and it was called eating light. I think I'd have to look up the exact name, the power of eating light. This is a book from the sixties or seventies, um, by Mitsuo Koda. And it, it really struck me that you know, in, in, I'd, I'd obviously come across intermittent fasting and you know, time-restricted eating, but he framed it as also a practice of compassion, mm. right? So if I'm eating only, you know, what I need, that leaves more food for someone else. Mm. And that seems so obvious, but <laughs> I just never thought about it that way. And it, and so that stuck with me and, and slowly it was just kind of the seed that started growing, you know, I'm like, well, what is that? Yeah. What is that? What does that allow? Right. There's, I hear so much talk about, I don't want to like leave any money on the table or I want to make sure that like, how much can I get? Right. Is this yeah. is sort of the lens that we're looking through? Like how much can I, can I take? But what if instead I asked in my life, how much is enough for me? And then that leaves more on the table. We see this like leaving something on the table as a bad thing, right? So I didn't take all of it. But if I leave something on the table, there's something for someone else to take. Mm -hmm. That's where that started. And I, and I just got really curious about what would the world look like if, if we all asked ourselves, if we took that responsibility to ask, like, how much do I need? Mm -hmm. 
So I'll, I'll stop there because it, <laughs> it can go in a lot of different directions with that. Yeah, I've, I want to go in as many of them as possible. I'm here for <laughs> I'm here for all of the directions, Monica. Okay. I let's see which one do I want to pick first. I would love to hear some ways that you cultivate enoughness in in your life. And if someone you said you do leadership coaching, if a leader is coming to you, how would you guide them to cultivate enoughness in their life? So I'll start with sharing that at least right now, my mission in life, the way that I, I frame it is that I'd like to move the needle in the world from operating from this place of fear, scarcity, and contraction to one of love, enoughness, and expansion. And I think, at least in my experience, and I'll talk about you know the Western world, the you know America-centric perspective because that's the one I know the best. Um, it might be applicable elsewhere. There is this there's this like culture of consumption, mm-hmm. and and it's this cycle of I have to consume because there's I'm lacking this thing. I don't have enough, or I'm not good enough. And if I get this thing, if I just accumulate, I can. Like I have this image of like, okay, if I just get enough stuff around me, I can build like this fortress of safety and security and certainty. And I think that's false. We just keep, we just keep accumulating, whether it's things or accolades or experience, even experiences, right? There's a, I think over the year, the few years I've, I've seen a lot of, well, don't buy things, buy experiences. And I'm like, well, if you're also, if you start collecting experiences, just to collect them, I think it's it's still materialist in a sense, right? You're just doing it to, to have the thing. And my hunch is that in order for us to shift to this enoughness and this expansion and feeling like, yes, I, I'm not, there's not scarcity, we have to break down those walls, right? I have to actually get closer to the thing that is seems scary. I have to get closer to the inherent fragility and instability of life to say, to see, actually, that is enough. And I am okay. Even in the not okayness, even in this like very scary space that, oh, what if I don't have enough? I find that I have enough. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes complete sense. (laughs) So I would love to hear I know that that you have experienced many transformational experiences that have probably helped you put your finger closer to the heart of that or to expand, you know, we could start talking in a little bit of flowery language here, but expanding your consciousness so that you're more open to uh, receiving gifts from the world, or maybe you worked with different spiritual counselors. I would, I would love to hear just maybe one or two, whether it's people in your life or experiences you had that helped you deepen your awareness around why this was so important to you? Yeah, I sort of describe this kind of like trifecta of healing. And for me, that is meditation, therapy, and psychedelics. Mm. So that has been, I think, very those are the three supportive relationships for me that I've, I've been working on for 
I don't know, since I'd say probably 2015, 2012, maybe actually 2010. <laughs> so I did my first 10 day Vipassana retreat when I was a senior in college. And that was my just first, very first introduction and understanding of how much of my own limitations are a product of my mind. And as one example, I, before the, before the retreat, I had never run a full mile. You know, I would like jog and walk. And I just never thought that I was a runner. This was this self-limiting belief that I had. And I wasn't even aware that it was just a self-limiting belief. After the retreat, I trained and ran my first half marathon. And then I ran multiple half marathons and then I ran a marathon and it was it was so simple, right? It seemed so simple that it was like, oh, now that I know and I've experienced that this is just a limit in my own mind, I that awareness allows me to work with it, right? And and then and then I didn't do, you know, psychedelics came in maybe 2015, um, and that started. Sorry, sorry, just right before we get yes. into psychedelics and therapy, I, and I, I I put a little mental bookmark there. I would love to, if you could just quickly explain what, what in, what did a Vipassana meditation retreat, a 10 day retreat entail? And like maybe one of the loops that you caught yourself in where then you were able to zoom out and and say, oh, you know, like, that's just a belief that I have. It's, that's not me. Yeah. Well, it was over a decade ago, so it might not be quite as fresh um, in my mind right now, but so 10 day Vipassana retreat is, um, you know, it's a, it is a beginner retreat. It doesn't really sound like it, but it's meant to introduce you to meditation. Um, and so, and the beautiful thing is, you know, as a college student, didn't have a ton of money and they said it was free. You pay what you can afterwards. So I was like, let's do this. Let's dive in. And I have a tendency to just kind of throw myself into the deep end. Um, and you know, that, that element of wanting to prove myself. So there was a bit of that in there. And I was like, yeah, I could do this. So you don't talk for 10 days. Um, you eat a fully vegetarian diet. Um, we would wake up at, I think, 5 or 6 a.m. And you go to bed at, I think, 9 or 10. And about, I want to say 12 hours, eight, or 8 to 12 hours of meditation. So you have breaks in between. But really just sitting still. And um, the Vipassana approach really um, stresses not moving. So trying to stay actually still. There are other, there are other schools like Tibetan Buddhism or uh, Mahayana Buddhism where it's a bit more gentle. Um, it's just a whole, it's a different approach. But for me at that time, I going into it, for example, a lot of my friends like, oh, how are you going to not talk for 10 days? You know, and I, I was worried. I was like, well, what's going to happen? I, I'd love to talk. Uh, and I'm very, I am very talkative. So what I noticed when I got there was actually, I, you know, I was surrounded with a huge group of people and it, it wasn't a limitation. It didn't feel like a limitation or it didn't feel like, oh, this is so hard. I have to sit for so long and I have to, you know, go to sleep and wake up so early those became really supportive structures in the process. So I noticed that rather than feeling like, oh, I can't talk, 
it freed me from this social norm of needing to talk or needing to engage with the person next to me out of politeness or whatever, you know, whatever we're taught, all these social conditionings. And I just, uh, I was so grateful by the end of it that I didn't have to talk, Hmm. you know? And so that was one shift that I found so fascinating. I was like, oh, you know, this is, this is actually very supportive and it's not scary. The the, the exact thing that I thought was going to be so scary and hard was the thing that I was holding on to as almost, you know, like a saving grace. So like, oh, okay, this is, this is calming me. So that was one thing that, that struck me where I thought, oh, wow, this is very counterintuitive. How many, how many other things in life might be counterintuitive? Mm. Right. So the running, for example, when I would, he, and then the, in the retreat every evening, SN Goenka, he, he had recorded teachings. So he would speak and every night, I remember just being amazed at how well he could track the experiences that I had. And obviously he wasn't just speaking to me, he was speaking to hundreds of people. And I was like, wow. So there's, he, you know, if I'm resonating with that and everyone else seems to be resonating with what he's saying, like there's gotta be some truth to this experience that we're all having. Right. So then I started to almost trust and say, okay, well, and he would say, right, just watch your mind and this is all in your head. I was like, oh, so when I'm running and I feel like I'm dying, what if that's just in my mind, <laughs> you know? And so just gave, I think it, it wasn't like this drastic change, but it just created a little bit of space between in my experience to, to start questioning and saying all these things that I assumed to be true that, well, I can't run. Is that really true? And that question I think opened up everything over time Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah okay now we can get back into (laughs) i cut you off we can get back into uh, psychedelics and therapy and yeah you can take it whatever direction you want but i i would love to hear maybe one experience of each or a therapist that really helped you how did they help you and a psychedelic experience take it take it in any direction you would like though yeah I'm trying to think back. It's all, <laughs> it's hard to talk about because so many of these things, it's, it's not like it was this linear process, right? It was all these things together and happening all at the same time. And so I think I, I started, I can't remember if I started, I think I started, I did psychedelics before I started therapy. And the first few times it was just kind of for fun at music festivals with friends. And I had a great time and, um, but I mean, I know I, I, I can, I understand this now. I didn't understand it at the time. Those people that I was, I was doing that with, I knew that I would be safe physically, but I didn't realize, I think I, I understood it like intuitively, but I didn't consciously know that they wouldn't have been able to handle like the emotional aspects of it. And so when I was doing psychedelics the first few times, I was holding myself back because I knew that there wasn't the permission to fully feel the experience. And then it wasn't until I met, um, I, went to, I went to a different music festival with different friends, uh, but, but I remember distinctly sitting, this was at Somerset Festival in Wisconsin and my friend's boyfriend at the time, it was like a thievery corporation set 
And he just sat down in the field, like in the middle of people. And I was like, okay, cool. And he sat down and he had his eyes closed and he was kind of just meditating. And I saw him next to me and it just gave me permission. You know, I think I was like looking for permission to do that too. So I sat down next to him. I closed my eyes and I would say that was my first spiritual experience with psychedelics. I had this entire conversation and I remember kind of coming to him being like, wait a minute, who was I having this conversation with? And I was like, oh, I met my inner council of elders. I had this whole conversation. It just, it felt like this, this, just this council of, of beings. And they were like, oh, we're so happy you're here. And we've always been here. We've just been waiting, you know, for you to like turn inward because I spent so much of my life looking externally for validation, for permission, but they were always there they being me, it's not different, right? It's not different like beings. It was me. And it was like, we were always here. We were just waiting for you to like, trust us. And we're here to guide you. And it was this beautiful conversation that I had with myself. And I was like, I'm so sorry that I didn't trust you. And they were like, yeah, it's fine. You know, like we're here. And it was such a place of love and acceptance. Um, And then I remember at the end, there was this like image of this kind of like gold spiral column coming up through the center of my body and going up through my head. And it was like studded with these like jewel toned stones. And it was just like spiraling up out of me in this like blinding light. And (laughs) It sounds nuts, but that's, that's what happened. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And like, I think that was really the start of me building my relationship with myself, building the, the trust and my intuition and like my gut instinct, like that was the, that was the moment. And it was, and I, you know, my experience with psychedelics is that it's a glimpse, right? It, it gives me glimpses into high, you know, different aspects of myself or the world, but then I really have to do the work to understand it and integrate it into my life. And so that's where I think meditation and therapy have come in for me, where I'll have an experience and I'm like, whoa, that was powerful. What does that mean? And how do I integrate that? And so through these contemplative practices, and working with therapy. So therapy really helps me work on kind of the shadow stuff, right? It's like clearing out things. And then meditation is really about, okay, how do I go deeper to like understand all these different aspects? So those all kind of work hand in hand to help me kind of, I don't know, I guess like stabilize my sense of self in a way. Mm -hmm. And then on the therapy side, I've done for years, I've done EMDR. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah. So that's sort of um, like eye movement, desensitization, and R. <laughs> I don't know what the R is. <laughs> I forget what the R is too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that for me is, a, it was just, it's been, it's about processing trauma, right? So they, they've been, I think they used it initially for PTSD, um, but I use it, I've been using it to process sort of childhood traumas. And 
we can go into that. I don't know if we want, where we yeah. want to go into that. If you had other questions. No, absolutely. I, I would love to, if you're comfortable with it, I, I would love to go into that. Yeah. Where do we start with that? That's been its own whole process of, well, I mean, I think that sort of takes us back to the beginning of the conversation when you were talking, when, you know, we asked about like my family. So my parents never got along very well. And so there was just, I'll just say that it was quite a volatile childhood, right? And, and I very quickly built up defenses to protect myself. So for me, it was like building these big walls and it was out of survival. Um, and I, so many things that went along with it, just becoming very hyper aware of my surroundings all the time very observant, right? I, I can tell or sense when someone's, there's like a subtle shift, someone's upset, you know, like I needed to know those things um, to keep myself safe and, or what felt like I needed to keep myself safe. And so in therapy, what I do with my therapist, and I've had a few, um, cause I've moved around and, and they've all been wonderful is taking a memory. So the way that EMDR works is like, you take a memory and you kind of set it up, you bring it back into your, you bring it up like in your body. So you bring up the memory, but then also the felt sense. Um, and as you're doing that, there's either like a light or these kind of like handheld devices that vibrate and it's kind of an alternating vibration. And there's not a lot of talking. So it's just very much experiencing and what it allows me to do is go back into that memory, but see it from where I'm standing now and make sense of it from the outside and say, oh, wow, like, okay, I can see why as a kid, this was scary. And here's how I can make sense of it, right? So my understanding of trauma is that it's, it's like an experience that we weren't able to process properly in the moment, right? So for whatever reason, it kind of like, got stuck. And I think of it as like, like I use the the framework of integral theory, like Ken Wilber's integral theory, where he talks about these lines of development. So I don't know if this is right, but this is how I think about it is like, we have all these different like ladders of development. And if there's, if when I experience trauma, one of those ladders might get stuck on one of these like low rungs. And so I'm still developing like cognitively, you know, on all these different levels, I'm still learning and I'm, you know, whatever, but this one aspect of me might be kind of stuck on this lower rung. And what I experienced with EMDR was, okay, if I can get that unstuck, then I can start climbing up the ladder. And then eventually all of those kind of get to the same level and even out. That's been my experience. And so it's how I make sense of that. So it was like a lot of these little stuck things along the ladder. And I was just working through different memories, trying to get them unstuck. And so what's interesting is for many years, you know, well into my twenties, late twenties, I still felt like I was 15 years old on the inside. Um, and, you know, people joke, they're like, oh, I still feel like I'm so young, but, but I really emotionally like felt like I was just stuck in this place. And as I did that work, now I finally actually feel the age that I am, which is, you know, 34 in my thirties, you know, I'm like, oh, wow, that's so interesting to see the, the external and the internal when it's not, it's like misaligned. Um, and I can only see it on 
now when it's now when it feels aligned, I'm like, oh, wow, that felt so misaligned. And I didn't realize it because I had no other point of reference. Mm -hmm. So it reminds me, uh, I mean, there's there are lots of books and, and people who talk about EMDR. And I, I want to name that it might sound like voodoo nonsense to someone who's not familiar with it. But it's really backed by people that do lots of rigorous scientific research. One thing that comes to mind for me is the book, The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And he talks about lots of different modalities that help us process trauma, whether it's capital T trauma or lowercase t trauma. And I think that you summed it up really nicely. I mean, my understanding of trauma, I don't want to characterize myself as some sort of expert here, but in, in the little bit that I have read about it, it is something that gets stuck in our body in some way. And it, it is something, like you said, that we were not able to process at the time that it happened. And if we don't take the time to tend to it and heal it and be with it, it, it kind of, it might just lay there forever dormant and keep us. It, it's like something that if we get poked there, we developmentally go right back to that age and, and behave in the way that we, uh, an eight-year-old or 15-year-old or whenever it happened might. So using the framework of the body keeps a score, were there any like, uh, did your therapist use any other uh, modalities that overlaid nicely with EMD EMDR to help you process that fully? Yeah, I did have one therapist where we actually focused on, we used EFT and we did, I think we used like different somatic modalities and they were, they were gentler. So it was like ask and receive. There was another one. I think it's, is it? something commitment therapy. I don't know what it's called, but they were, they were basically, they were more gentle forms, but it was still focused on the somatic processing. And, and those were, those were helpful, but I found EMDR to be the most useful for me. And the other thing that I've recently started exploring is uh, neurofeedback. So I did a few sessions with a, uh, with a therapist in, in Tokyo when I was visiting there. And unfortunately I couldn't continue just because it, you need to be there in person or spend thousands of dollars on this unit that I was like, wow, I don't know if I wanna invest in that right now. But um, even in the few sessions, I, you know, it, from the one we did, um, IFS, Infra Slow, ISF, you know, infraslow fluctuations. I think it's ISF is there's like four different types of neuro neurofeedback. And that was the one that she, she thought that I could do. And it's essentially just training, training your brain waves, right. To like pick out one of the waves. It's either like beta, gamma, alpha, or theta, I think are the, the four. I just remember after those sessions, I had the best sleep. I was so relaxed. And like I mentioned, only once I could experience that, could I then go look back and say, oh, wow, my entire life, I've been at this like slightly heightened level of activity, right? That, that to me feels like relaxation, but I, it's not, you know, <laughs> my body is still just like, like just like low grade activated all the time, basically. 
and and I don't notice it and that that becomes normal, but I've always struggled for many years with just being exhausted. And I remember talking to my sister, I was like, what? I'm so tired all the time. And she was like, yeah, you're, you're on all the time. And, and that's, I think just a habit that I learned maybe, right. Of when I was younger, just needing to be aware all the time. And so a big theme for me over the years is how can I just relax and how can I bring more ease and more spaciousness and it's amazing how much that does, right? It's not, I don't need like crazy productivity hacks, all these things. It's, it's just so simple that it feels silly sometimes. And what are, what are some of those simple ways? What are like maybe daily practices that help you stay grounded and, and calm the nervous system down so that you're actually relaxed, not at that low grade, <laughs> a little bit anxious or worried? Yeah. So I have a morning meditation practice and that's something that has been a bit of an on and off practice. I go through cycles for many years, right? Since, since 2010, only in the last year, six months, I guess, since the beginning of this year, I've meditated every morning since January 1st this year. And it was really about finding the right like system for me, right? It, it, different things work for different people. And I found for me, I have a friend who gave me um, this book and it was like 365 days of offering. So each day there is a quote on a new quote. So I think something about that element of novelty each day, right? Really to me, I'm like, oh, I want to, I want to read the quote. And so I sit down, I kind of like, I do my, you know, intention setting. And then I read the quote. The other element that really helped was that I stopped setting a timer. Mm. I said, the goal for me, I was, I was really trying to like create this like seed behavior, like planting the seed, right? This habit. And it was like, I just need to sit and I sit for as long as it feels good that day. Or if I don't have time, I'll sit for a minute. I'll sit for five minutes. I'll sit for 40 minutes. But removing, again, that pressure from it allowed me to just sink into the joy of it and to feel it in my body and say, oh, this feels good. It shifts now all of a sudden from like, I need to do this thing. And if I don't meet, you know, this comes back to the enoughness is like, if I don't sit for 40 minutes, it's not enough. Or like, I might as well not do it. You know, it's just, then we get into this all or nothing, you know, perspective. I get into this all or nothing perspective, I should say versus however long I sit is enough. Mm. And that's great, right? So there's the ease. It's the way in which I interact with myself, the way that I treat myself. And then how I treat myself with gentleness and more compassion, with more, more ease, naturally permeates the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm more gentle with other people. I'm more generous, more compassionate. All of that happens naturally. I don't have to like try to be a thing. So meditation is one. I use a lot of breathing, breathing practices and that, you know, s- simple as box breathing, right? Inhale for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold for four. And then the question of what is enough for me has been 
has been huge. Um, it's so easy for me to get into this feeling of, you know, FOMO, or I should be doing this or that, or just the anxiety driven <laughs> thought process. And then I'm like, yeah, but what's enough, right? I'm like, oh, actually it's way less than I think it is. Mm -hmm. And so for example, even, I mean, I'll just take kind of a silly example, but I'm in Australia right now. I'm in Sydney for one of my best friend's weddings. And initially I was like, oh, I'm going to be in Australia. I'm, you know, flying all the way over. I should go, I should go do this thing. I should go explore Melbourne or go to Tasmania and all these other things until I stopped and I asked like, yeah, but what's enough, you know? And I realized actually the thing that would feel like really good for me, that is not exciting. I'm not going to be able to like post about it on Instagram, but it's like, okay, I actually want to stay here for the wedding. And then I'd like to leave and I'm going, I'm, I'm spending the summer in Europe uh, to do an internship. And I was like, I'd actually just like to go there settle in, find my grocery store, find my jujitsu gym, like get my routine going. And that's enough. Mm -hmm. I don't have to try to do the most number of things, get, you know, hit all the spots, mm -hmm. any of that. And it feels so good. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a couple more things I want to hit with you, Monica. One of them, this, this might seem a little bit random, but I think it fits in into you know, nutrition and food have a, a large impact on uh, how we show up on our physiology, on our psychology. Do you have a, maybe not a diet, but do you have foods that you, that you turn to that you find the most nourishing and, and support you showing up as your most present and, and best self? Mm. Well, I have been... I did a lot of experimenting with lots of different diets. Um, I think I did. I tried like a raw food diet in college, keto, um, all kinds of stuff that I can't even remember at this point. Mediterranean diet, all, all these different things, uh, intermittent fasting I've done. But over the last couple of years, I have been eating largely a plant-based diet. And I say plant-based, I don't call myself vegan because I like to give myself, again, the space, right? It doesn't, I, I don't like the feeling like, oh, I, I need to be so strict about it, you know, especially when I'm traveling or sometimes I'm with, you know, I'm visiting a friend and they lovingly made something with an egg in it. it was, they baked me something. And I'm like, you know, in that moment, I value the connection and the appreciation more than sticking to my diet. Um, and so I, I, I cook vegan at home. Um, sometimes when I go out, I might eat fish or there might be a broth made with, you know, pork or something. And I'm like, well, I can't get away from it. And that's okay. So I make, it's, it's really, it's less about like strict rules and more about what's my intention here. Right. So it is about really important. I notice the difference when I'm eating certain ways. So I love eating lots of vegetables and now I crave them. Right. I'm like, if I don't, if I have a few meals where I'm eating fries or something, I'm like, Ooh, I could really use some fresh veggies right now. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, but also I think about it as, you know, if it's, if it's 
about the animals. And if I order something, I didn't know there was meat in it and it comes, I'm like, well, that animal already died. For me to not eat it just hurts my heart. I'm like that, then he would have died for nothing. Mm-hmm. So then I eat it, right? So I try to minimize, but but that again, to me brings back to that enoughness. It's like, what's enough in this moment? And sometimes that means more, sometimes that means less. It, it's not, I think initially when we think about it, it's like, oh, it's about like minimalism and, and reducing everything. But actually oftentimes for me, it's been more, right? So when I've been, pa- I packed for the summer and I was like, well, what's enough? Like, what do I need to really be, feel good? And I actually packed more things because that means then I have to buy less when I get there. Or I packed, you know, all my, you know, certain things that in the past, I might've been like, like I packed my watercolors in the past. I might've been like, oh, I don't, I, you know, what's the least amount I can bring so I can pack super light. And now I'm like, actually, I need that to feel really good. I love to paint and I want to have access to that. And so enoughness can go both ways. And I think that's, what's beautiful about it is like, it's, it's not really this rule, like a strict rule of like, I can't do this, that thing, but it really requires us to become present in each moment and, and think about what does this moment call for? So what's coming up for me right now is the, the body has been mentioned several times maybe looking for markers in the body, right? So it's a trauma response or enoughness. What what comes up for me is that would be something I would look for. Like it's, it's not something that I know intellectually in my head. It's something that comes from a deeper level. And, and to me, that is whether it's intuition or the body. And I'd be curious to hear whether it's for you or for uh, clients you work with or businesses, whoever it is, what are some markers that you look for in your body or help other folks look for in their body that are, you know, like this, if I feel this sensation or this way, I know that that is enough or that I'm angry or what, whatever it might be. Like, what are some markers that you look for? Yeah, I think it's, and I, and I think it is very personal So I don't, I wouldn't know what, when I think about my clients, I wouldn't know what their markers are. And so I think about my role when I'm working with a client as us partnering together to explore their own experience Mm -hmm. and start to identify, right? Like, what does that feel like? Um, So talking from my own experience, there was just, many years where we talked, we touched on this a little bit where we're looking like externally, right? So there's all these frameworks and tools and theories. And I would, and I would wonder like, oh, which, you know, which diet is the right one or which productivity hack is the best one. I'm like, okay, I was waiting for someone on the outside to tell me what was right and what would work. And what I found was that I needed to develop, the more I developed my own self-knowledge and feel in like, what am I feeling right now? What's going on in my stomach, in my heart, in my head. Um, And recently uh, also I've started thinking about my womb. And that's not one, one of my friends, you might know Tiffany, Tiffany Wen, she's in the the RPC community as well. I've never met Uh, her, but I know her, I know who she is. Yeah. Yeah. She helped me start thinking about the womb. And I was just amazed, like even 
when I just place my attention, let's say in the heart and ask like, oh, what is, what's coming up here? And it's just completely different information. I've been blown away by what comes up and I'm like, I didn't even think that was going to happen. I had no idea that all these different parts hold so many different messages. So placing my attention on these different parts and saying what's coming up and then noticing from there, okay, I'm trying this thing. How does it feel for me? And figuring out it's just a process of trial and error. Like no one has the answer, right? You just try different things. And with clients, that is part of the process because we're so used to this like linear approach of, okay, what's the right thing? I'm going to try this. And then, you know, this, and then we're going to like solve this thing, ABC, but it's, it's really more of this like messy space. And you're kind of like floating around, if you will, I'm kind of moving my arms. You're not going to be able to see a podcast, but we're just going all over and, and helping them get comfortable in that space that it doesn't feel like we're moving towards anything sometimes. And I'll have clients be like, well, what's the, like, what are we doing? You know? So we do set goals right? Because that gives people, some people need that and they want comfort. But my, my job, the way I see it is like really kind of like bringing them in being like, okay, we create a container of trust. If you trust me and I trust you and we're connected, then it creates a little bit more space, a little more ease. So you could just relax and trust, start building that trust that what needs to happen is going to happen. What you need to find is going to happen, but it may not look the way that you want it to, or that you thought it was going to. And so it's this, like, I would say messy process of just exploring. And, and that's when you can allow for like what needs to emerge and to find, oh, this works for me. Okay. Let's use this. That works. This doesn't feel good. That feels good. And it's, and I think that that's a big building that capacity in ourselves that like self-knowledge then Anything that's coming at me I in the world, any kind of stimulus, I can make sense of it, right? And I can say, oh, okay, this is what's happening for me. And it doesn't have to be for everyone else. It's just, it ne I need to understand how I am processing it because I'm the only one that's showing up in, in my world, right? I'm the only one I have really control over to some extent. Did that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> have there been... Have there been any moments where, so I'm, I'm thinking of a lot of times our, our intuition guides us to something that our mind, it doesn't compute, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And we're like, but there's like a deeper knowing inside. Has that, have you ever, do any decisions come to mind that you've made where you, you checked in with your intuition, it was telling you go a certain way. And then if you were to maybe float that idea out to your inner circle or even your own mind, it, it maybe didn't make any sense. And how, how did you know to, to go with your intuition in, in that moment? And if nothing comes to mind, that's okay. Just So I recently ended um, my relationship of five years with my partner mm -hmm. and I don't, I don't really like calling it ended. I think it's more like we're just transitioning to a different way of relating. You know, I don't see it as so black and white because we have this deep connection. There is still so much care and love and tenderness and neither of us feels the need to just stop. You know, I, the idea of like, okay, we broke up and we're just going to cut off this connection has never made sense to me. So 
we're shifting into a different way of relating. But that was one where for a long time, I was trying to find a reason to rationalize or to make sense of the thing I was feeling inside. And ultimately I realized I actually could not have come to this point based on any reason, right? If I said, oh, he didn't do this or this isn't, or I didn't do that or whatever. All I know is that everything changes, right? The world is constantly changing. So if I was like making a decision based on one specific reason, I wouldn't even be comfortable with that because I'm like, I know that that's gonna probably change at some point. And so it's so uncomfortable in, in many senses where I was like, oh, I, I'm actually just doing it because it doesn't feel right in my body. This specific structure, this specific way of relating doesn't work. I don't have any other reason. He's an amazing human being. Like I have so much love for him. Don't have a bad thing to say, right? It's just not working. And that took me a long time to get to, but ultimately I was like, okay, this is actually the only reason that I would be comfortable using because I'm like, this is just a core thing that I'm feeling. And I have to trust myself with that. If I've learned anything over the years of all the stuff that I've done, it's that. Well, I I really appreciate your vulnerability and your willingness to go there. I I think that people will get a, a lot of value out of everything you've shared, Monica. And before we move towards the very back end of this conversation, is there anything that I didn't already introduce that, that you would like to invite into the conversation? There's nothing, I'm not, I, I, there's a lot, I think that we opened up like little doors that I would, I would love to, you know, I would have, I would love to like, just have a, have a conversation with you to learn more. I feel like obviously you're interviewing me. So I've shared a lot and now I'm so curious about more about you. Um, but there's nothing, you know, in particular that that feels like left unsaid right now. Okay. That sounds good. I I'll be happy to share more about me in, uh, in the conversation. That's not, that is centered towards me and not about you as the guest. So, uh, yeah, just, just a couple more questions, Monica. I love asking my guests, what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy. So my mind immediately goes to, well, me and my partner had two standard poodles and they are super adorable, Avi and Charles. So Avi is this red standard poodle and Charles is a black standard poodle. And they were the absolute best things in my life. And when I sit, you know, if I like, I love making my coffee in the morning, I just drink black coffee, I'll bring it, I'll sit down on the couch. And on my luckiest days, both of them, one will come on one side, the other will come on one side, and they'll just both settle in. And if I'm, and then if I have like a book, and I'm like sitting there reading, or I'm journaling, and they're just snuggled up next to me, that I can't think of a more like soul satisfying moment. Hell yeah. (laughs) (laughs) do do avi and charles have a a favorite place in the world that they've been with you (laughs) well i mean they were living in japan they're living in japan now so i think they're doing pretty well (laughs) Uh awesome (laughs) um books have been mentioned a few times now 
I would love to hear, doesn't have to be a specific amount, but as it pertains to what we've discussed today, are, are there any books or resources that you recommend for folks that, that you found helpful in your development that maybe you just recommend for reading for fun? It could be sci-fi, it could be anything at all. Yeah, so you already mentioned The Body Keeps the Score and that was, I read that re fairly recently and I that was an amazing book. Um, also, In Praise of Shadows by Jun Ichiro Tanizaki is, um, it's, it's pretty short essay, but it is beautiful. Then there's, I think the other one that I'll share is Oliver Berkman's 4,000 Weeks. Mm. And that came out fairly recently. Have you read it? It's, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, I just absolutely loved it. I thought he did such a beautiful job of pulling together so many different threads of areas of interest that I have and concepts that I've already been thinking about and wraps it up so nicely. I mean, that is like, I was like, when I read it, I was like, this is, yes, <laughs> this is yeah. what I was, didn't know that I was looking for. The other, so I'll share two more things. One is the Weird Studies podcast, if you haven't heard of it. They are amazing, JF, Martell, and Phil Ford. And, and then Theory U. I, um, so Otto Sharmer and, and I think he also works with Arwana Hayashi and together, I think they've built all these, just these like presencing practices and it, it's just ways of working with the body that has been amazing. And, and actually along those lines over the last year, I have been, I started practicing this dance form. It's called Buto, B-U-T-O-H. And it's a Japanese dance form that is really a spiritual practice. And it's about making the familiar strange. And so that has been one way that I've really been able to start working with my body and noticing like, how does the body want to move as opposed to how do I want to move the body? And it's been a, a kind of an amazing shift in, in how I relate. So those would be a few of the things that I would recommend. Awesome. I'll, I'll link to all of that in the show notes and everything else that we've discussed where, wherever pertinent, I will link to the show notes. Something that's coming up for me around 4,000 weeks, which I read pretty recently by Oliver Berkman as well. As you were discussing, um, it didn't happen as you were describing it, but the image is they're folding over each other right now. As you were discussing going on a Vipassana meditation retreat and just sitting there and being with yourself, being with your thoughts for very extended periods of time, there is a part of the book that, that really has stuck with me that reminds me of that. And it's something along the lines of he, there was a professor, I think it was at Harvard University who teaches an art history course or something along those lines. And the first homework assignment of the semester is for the students to go to an art museum and to just stare at a picture for three hours without any distraction, no phone, you can't get, it. you can go to the bathroom, but other than that, you just have to stare at the picture for three hours. And in the description, I have not done it myself, but I can imagine as he described it, the first maybe hour or so, maybe even hour and a half, it's just this agonizing, uh, you're, you're thinking of all these different things and the, your responsibilities and how the hell am I going to sit here for a long time? And he said at some point there was something that just shifted where he was able to just drop in and notice like all the intricacies of the painting and 
there was a story that unfolded about it. And there was something that just really slowed down. And it's you have some artwork behind you. And as I'm describing this, I'm starting to notice all the different colors and all the little idiosyncrasies that make this wonderful piece of art. And it seems like that would be, if not three hours, like that's a really powerful practice to cultivate in our life of how can we slow down enough to see the beauty in all these little things around us that we might otherwise take for granted and sometimes even suffer through, right? Like sometimes just sitting down for two minutes can be really daunting for folks. And I think that that it's a really good, if, if not very uncomfortable, it's a great practice to have. And that was something that I, I thought was a, a valuable connection to make. Yeah. I think, I think that's a, that's a beautiful point. It's, it's really a, a wonderful metaphor for life. And it was a big lesson for me that I'll share where, I mean, I've, I've traveled quite a bit and I, a lot of it was in my twenties and I was just trying to see everything. Um, but for me, I felt like my journey began when I, you know, I moved back to New York and I just stayed there. Right. And I wasn't moving. It was only when I stopped moving around externally, like physically so much that I started the journey inward. Mm-hmm. And, and then it broke open this whole world. Right. Of, mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I could actually just not be moving and look like I'm doing absolutely nothing. And really, it's one of the most amazing journeys that I've you know, ever been on. And you just notice it. And then as I, as you slow down, you start to notice so much more. So this isn't normally where I end, but I, I know that you're, what you're up to right now is you're trying to create a more conscious future oriented world. And you've named that you're an idealist. And so I, I would love to know from your perspective, like what this isn't, this might not be a really quick question to, to end towards, but what is the, the brighter ideal future that you're looking to help co-create right now? What, what does it look like, say, 20, 30, 40 years from now? Yeah, well, I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, which is that, and maybe this is, you know, it's, it's simple. It's, I, I envision a world where we're not operating from as much from fear, scarcity, and contraction. And we're operating more from love, enoughness, and a space of expansion. And I would say that that's sort of what I'm trying to bring into being. I don't think about one specific future because I think that we have we have many futures, we have many existing presents. There's so many different realities already existing. And so any single future that I might be imagining is gonna benefit some people and it's gonna not benefit other people, right? So I would love to enable as many people as possible to bring forth their futures and how do we create a grand future where all of those can be embraced and that there's space for all of them and they can be respected and supported? That's what I would like to do. Here, here. Well, Monica, I, actually, before I do my, my little sign off, where would you invite folks to connect with you online or otherwise? 
Twitter would be good. I'm still getting my website up and running. So, uh-huh. <laughs> so I'll share that with you at some point in the future. But um, I don't even know what my Twitter is or my email. How, well, how would you? It, it could, I, I meant more like maybe website or do, is there anywhere where you share a little bit more about your work? I'm that's that's getting built out right now. So it will be forthcoming. But if anybody wanted to connect, I can share my email or like LinkedIn. Then, you know, I'm I'm always open to having kind of one-on-one conversations. And and then once the website's ready, I'll I'll be happy to share that. Awesome. Well, Monica, I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, this exploration of you, this exploration of everywhere you've been, and exploration of the the brighter future that you are already presently helping to create. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. It's, it's given me plenty food for thought, especially I'm, I'm finding myself really drawn to, you said it's Buto, B-U-T-O-H, is that what it's called? Buto, yeah. Buto, yeah. And, and just kind of letting, letting my body move as, as it wants to move. I, that it's, it's almost like a confusing, my mind is going, huh, how does that work? And I, I know that that could be a really valuable experience. So thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on. Thank you so much for having me. And to all the listeners, I hope you have a great rest of your day or evening whenever you're listening. And I, I hope that you find what enoughness means to you and take good care. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.